This is Fordham Conversations. I'm Nora Flaherty. I'm Los Angeles. So I flew out there, checked this place out, and it's, it's all these young kids. On Tuesday nights, it's nonfiction night at the KGB bar in the East Village. Four authors, including Trevor Corson, who you just heard introducing a reading from his book, The Story of Sushi, have come here to read tonight. And a fair number of people have come to listen, which is not bad when you consider that they are missing part of the presidential debate to be here. KGB is a tiny bar on the second floor of a tenement building on East 4th Street. But it has an interesting story and an interesting role in the city's literary community. Here's bartender Jennifer Price and writer Kelly McMasters. She runs a nonfiction night. I had a chance to talk with them over the intermission din. Originally, it was a social club for Ukrainians. Um, actually, originally, it was a speakeasy, a casino. It was one of Lucky Luciano's joints during Prohibition. And I've heard rumors there are even um, tunnels to neighboring buildings that they found. But then it became the Ukrainians took over. And it was a social club, and Dennis, the owner, uh, his father was a member of the social club, and that's how he wound up getting involved with the place. He originally had a, a gallery downstairs, and then he bought the building. The KGB bar has um, a really long history of being entrenched in the literary community. Our owner, uh, Dennis, also has um, a play space upstairs, and so the entire building is basically devoted to the arts. Sunday nights are always fiction. Um, Monday nights are poetry, Tuesday nights are nonfiction, uh, Wednesday nights are sci-fi and fantastic fiction, and Thursdays and Fridays, it's a mishmash. Ooh, I love a mishmash. But in these trying times, Kelly McMaster says that the KGB has an additional selling point as well. In, the, in light of the um, recession quickly moving to depression, it's pretty rare that you can get a wonderful free night of um, booze and good readings and this is probably one of the best places now to bring a date and uh, impress them without having to spend a ton of money. To be fair, the booze isn't free. The booze is not free and you have to tip the bartenders because they are great, Um, but you can also buy a book and support a writer as well. Today on the show, we are talking about building that sense of community in New York where a get-together with people of similar interests often has an entry fee or a two-drink minimum. A little later on the show, we'll hear about an effort to bring classical music into bars and back to the masses, and we'll catch up on the gossip at a local hair salon. But first, my guest on the show today is Dennis Wojcik. Wojcik's the founder and principal owner of KGB Bar. But as we heard from Jennifer Price, he's been involved with the bar for a lot longer than he's owned it. In the 1980s, Wojcik, who was then a student at Fordham Law School, opened up the Crane Gallery on the building's ground floor. For the next decade or so, he ran the gallery, and then a theater, and finally a bar in the building, while he practiced law, first in private practice and later representing the dangerously mentally ill in the city's maximum security psychiatric hospital. Eventually, Wojcik was able to go full-time with the bar, and in the mid-90s, KGB began the reading series that the bar is now known for. I spoke to Wojcik in his office-slash-storeroom-slash-living-room on the top floor of the building that houses KGB. I started our conversation by asking him to tell me the story of the bar, starting from when he was a kid. When I was a kid, this building and the bar were the social club headquarters for the Ukrainian labor home. This was uh, this whole neighborhood was like Little Italy was Italian, Chinatown was Chinese, this neighborhood was Little Ukraine. And my father used to take me to visit his cronies, 
and they'd have um, Ukrainian dancing for children. And I know I was quite small because you had to be five to join the dance group. And I remember thinking, wow, those kids are really big. It was the first big room I'd ever seen, which is the hall downstairs below the bar, which is now the theater, the Crane Theater. I had my first drink in that room when I was five. Ukrainian men believe their son should get an early start. It's fairly hard drinking culture. So for many years, I was just coming in, and this is my dad's place. He was just a patron. He didn't have ownership. He was just a guy who sometimes would freelance bounce. Um, he was kind of a tough guy. And uh, then I lost touch for a number of years. But while I was at school at Fordham Law School, working my way through by teaching at Pratt Institute, LIU, John Jay College, and others, I found I liked the company of artists very much. It was a good change of pace from law students. And uh, since I was working regularly, I opened an art gallery in the ground floor called the Crane Gallery, after the word Ukraine, with the U lopped off. And I'd take the artists up. Every Friday, we'd have a big party in the bar. You could get a four-course meal and a drink for $5. Even then, that was cheap. And artists, generally being not well-funded, found it was fabulous. Now, the bar itself had been built out as a bar, as I understand it, during Prohibition. And you got to come up a stair and kind of turn a corner, and there's a steel door with a little opening in it, perfect for a speakeasy. The, gra- the glass behind the bar is original um, early, um, is it Beaux-Arts, Bell-Arts, or Art Deco? My art history is kind of sketchy, but it's right in there, and it's really a little time machine um, laid out with a kind of Cold War thing. There's a picture of Brezhnev, there's a Politburo, there's also the um, Taras Shevchenko, who's considered the George Washington of the Ukraine, one of the speakers for Ukrainian independence. But it's really a bar, more than anything else. It's a theme bar. But it's a bar, and the real theme of the bar, more than the the decorations, is culture. We give free culture away. I grew up in New York where culture was free at the time. Now you've got to pay to get into a museum. I think that's wrong. And that may be in part because I grew up poor, and I could culture myself. I could educate myself. Not that I loved going to museums, but I found you kind of had a habit of it. It's great to be able to go somewhere and feed your mind without paying $15 that could buy lunch. Um, So we do free culture, but the secret is culture floats, and it floats on booze. Tell me a little bit more about the history of of the building itself. Tell me about the Ukrainian Working Men's Club and everything since then. Well, I could not tell you everything because I'm discovering things all the time. The Ukrainians here used to own the building across the street, which is now Manhattan Plaza, which is a, a building that can hold 5,000 people. Um, they were there. That was the Ukrainian Labor Home's central headquarters until 1948. This building, I don't know much about from 1948, but I will guess that it was originally a library when libraries were considered entertainment centers, when you paid a nickel to get in and read the latest installment of Charles Dickens, um, then it became, became the Palm Casino. And I understand it became a lucky, lucky Luciano joint during Prohibition. But in 1948, Ukrainian labor home bought it because after World War II, they were hemorrhaging members because they were considered suspect. 
and uh, they couldn't support a building which runs one block long from end to end that holds 5,000 people. This was the tiny building on the block. They ran it as their central headquarters. It was for a national organization. They produced the daily Ukrainian news, which became the weekly Ukrainian news, which became the monthly Ukrainian news, which became the Ukrainian news when we get around to it. They had a big hall downstairs, which they held banquets in and dances, and they'd have, you know, 120 people come and have dinner. The uh, This office, which you're in right now, is the office for some of the people that ran that, and they had a meeting hall downstairs, like a little theater. They would project, uh, there's two movie projectors here that you can see, which they'd use occasionally to project Soviet, quote, propaganda films. Not real propaganda, not sophisticated, like we see on TV in presidential campaigns, but like, these are the tractors that reap the wheat that grows in the fields. That kind of, uh, you know, stories about the Ukraine. And, um, they had an ongoing community. It was a community center for this, for many of the people that were growing older in this neighborhood, which is primarily a Ukrainian neighborhood. And uh, but they did a pretty good job for somewhere between forty and fifty years. Eventually, running a bar becomes something that's not really suited to people in their eighties. When uh, it gets dark at four o'clock in the afternoon and you're tired. Bars don't even open until 7, 8, 9, 10, 11, when things really start to happen. So eventually, uh, I began to do more and more activities in the building as they were less and less interested in keeping it going, and they were dying off qu- quite a lot. Um, so they, were, they, they lost their membership, essentially. And uh, so I opened the bar in 1993, and we did not have a sign. For the first seven years, we had no sign. Eventually, we had to put up a sign because our literary events became so popular. Um, George Plimpton would come. I mean, people who were big players in the literary world would have to find it. So we put out a sign, KGB Bar. People still don't always find it because it's on the second floor, and if you don't know where it is, people are kind of loathe to walk up staircases in buildings that they're unfamiliar with. I would say most all of our clientele, someone brings them the first time someone brings them. How did you, um, I guess, how did you come to be in a situation where you were operating a gallery out of the first floor and eventually were owning this? Did you sort of come to this, the people in this organization and say, hey, I'd like to start taking over as you all die? Well, that would be a hard way to put it, wouldn't it? I opened the art gallery for fun while I was at Fordham Law School But I did realize, after doing that for five years, and I was clearly their means of support, and they said, oh, eventually we're going to get you the building. And I did it for five years, and I said, you know what, I think that I should get some kind of written assurance. And they all said, don't worry. I said, I'm worried. So they had a board of directors meeting after they each assured me they'd vote for me, and it came back unanimous against. So this was in the... uh, about uh, 89 or so. I'd been doing this for five or six years. So I left. Um, I didn't push the old people out. They just kind of aged out. I'd never said, I'm looking for you to die. Um, But, you know, this is years, years go by. And um, they asked me to, I'd left, and they asked me to come back in uh, 92, and they gave me an option to buy contract. 
So then I said, all right, if I can make this work, I can have a future that is engaging to me. And uh, I do think we're really performing a public service. Literary exposure should be free. And that people want to come is wonderful. You are listening to Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. I'm talking today on the show with Dennis Wojcik. He's the founder of the KGB Bar in the East Village. In a few minutes, we'll hear about another effort to bring together the arts and beer. But first, I was surprised when I was looking into KGB Bar to find out how controversial the name had been with the bar's previous owners. Many of them encountered a lot of trouble for their leftist sympathies during the McCarthy era, and they feared that the name would bring unwanted attention. They were concerned about being identified because... They had been blacklisted, so, so many of them, for what or in many ways were legitimate activities. I mean, this is a country where you do have freedom of speech and you're allowed to hold a view that isn't necessarily embraced by, say, uh, a, a George Bush or you know some rich kid or whatever it is. It was just a viewpoint. But when I opened the KGB bar, um, they felt somehow I was calling attention to their uh, their positions. They were in an they were an actively political. They just had working man's sympathies and union sympathies. It's it's like a museum in a sense because I have so many pieces from th- this part of history, which are quite interesting. Um, but I'm not really well-versed in discussing the politics because this is kind of secondhand. You know, I, I think many of us don't know our parents' politics very well. It was not something, especially um, in certain circles, things were not discussed openly, and there was a sense of paranoia. When you did take over the building, you found a bunch of stuff up here in this room under lock and key. Tell me about that stuff. Well, actually, it was hidden in that other little room with, like, super double locks and things of that nature. But what it was is, uh, say, anti-Nazi propaganda posters and pictures of Politburo, some, uh, the first woman in space, the first cosmonaut lady, um, things of that nature were all hidden in this room because they felt it was incendiary, it would be... Uh, unacceptable. If I come to the KGB for the evening, what can I expect? Well, it depends on what time you come. We have about five crowds, five followings. From seven to nine, we have a literary crowd. And uh, we have authors usually reading from something that they've written, um, maybe a novel that's about to be released or a book of poetry or nonfiction books. Each night has a different designation. So we start off with a literary crowd. Then around nine o'clock, they start to drift out. But we have theaters. Some of them, some of the shows ended around nine, so we might have a theater, theater crowd, a post theater crowd from say nine to eleven. At eleven o'clock, we get NYU graduate students and the early night hipsters. At one o'clock, we get industry people, people from restaurants and bars. And to me, that's a great compliment that we have such a strong following from restaurants and bars because it means we're doing something right. So these are people that know. And uh, 1 o'clock on, it's hipsters, and we used to have a very strong criminal following, which was a bit unnerving. But uh, now the criminals can't afford this neighborhood anymore, and I'm, I'm not so sorry to see them go, but I did have a certain fondness for some of them. Criminal following? Well, you know, guys that were proud of, they did some time for attempted, and I'm thinking attempted, at least, you know, at least the guys I used to represent completed the act. Um, but it got a little sketchy because some of them would be um, 
they'd start off to have spend six months as regulars and then suddenly they want to do a little business in the bar. They want to sell something. They want to sell something illicit. And I have to tell them, look, Bebo, I love you to pieces, but I got an 86, so you can't do business here. And most of them were like, they could respect that because they were mid-30s, it was business. But some of the young bucks are feeling dishonored and they have to uh, exact revenge. And we had some serious difficulties with uh, some of the bouncers and some of the criminals mixing it up. But I'm glad to say that that section, that portion of nightlife is, is history um, because it ultimately came down to me. I was the principal and I was the guy who had to, my bartender wouldn't say, I'm not telling that guy that. Uh-uh. But uh, I seemed to get their respect, so I never really had a problem personally in that regard. So how have you seen the neighborhood change since you opened the Crane Gallery? Well, when I opened the Crane Gallery, actually the neighborhood, many people say it was a horrible slum, but I'd already seen it improve at least tenfold. In the, I remember in the uh, when I was a kid, it really was, there was heroin all over the place. And the, there were, some of the restaurants that are here now were used tire stores. The corner bodega was essentially a store to buy pot and other things. And you, the cobwebs were on the shelves. Nobody seemed to care. When I opened the, uh, the art gallery, I began to do theater at night. And I remember one night, I'm in the bar looking out the window, and I see a man run out from across the street, chased by another man with a gun. Pop, pop, pop. You hear the shots. The people watching the show thought it was part of the show. But I see him run into the building, the, 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 the fleer, chased by this guy brandishing a gun. I should have ducked, but it happened so quickly. Fifteen, minute, 15 minutes later, there's 12 cop cars parked outside across the street. It was essentially a numbers joint and maybe doing some other things too. And everybody knew what was going on everywhere, but it was numbers. It wasn't like they were selling heroin off the, off the floor. The police gave them a blind eye, but as soon as you have live gunfire, you can no longer pretend that this is an innocuous operation. I think it was just numbers. In any case, now it's a legitimate place, but there was a time when these some of these storefronts were just fronting for another operation, and um, there were a lot of homeless people, which is one of the great failures of uh, New York City. We don't see them around here anymore, but I'm sure they're still around, just not here. When I grew up, Bowery Bum was one word. Now it's Bowery's the Gold Coast. Every block has a new high-rise, 20, 30 stories high. The Bowery, where I used to park my garage and get it fixed on East 3rd and Bowery, is now the Bowery Hotel, $500 a night for a room. Every block has a new skyscraper going up on the Bowery because of zoning. Literally every block. If you go to the corner, you just see them. Whether that's going to continue now that we're in a, a new ec economic order, we will find out. But it certainly has changed remarkably. Um, and in some ways, for the worse, in some ways for the better. I was resentful for a while when I saw the arts all getting squeezed out for bankers because I really, my heart was in the arts for a long time. But uh, as Pat Garrett said, and Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid, with a slight change, this neighborhood's grown old and rich, and I aim to grow old and rich with it. 
Um, so I've adjusted to the new clientele, and um, I mean, it's an odd thing when you can say a 30-year-old's a kid. I guess I'm getting on in my years. But there's a lot of nice kids come to the bar, and they're smart, and they're, uh, they, have, they have good hearts, and they uh, have good conversation. We're one of the only bars in the East Village, maybe in New York, that does not have a television blaring. And I think that that's an anathema. It's a bad idea for conversation. Even if you're not watching this show, even if the TV is not on, it draws your eyes. It's a, you can, I can watch TV at home. I don't want to watch TV in a bar. If people have to talk to each other, good. Let's commune. Let's have a little socialization here. And let's have some drinks. And you can find out more about the KGB Bar at kgbbar.com. This is Fordham Conversations on WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org. I'm Nora Flaherty. Just after the show this morning, it's Cityscape with George Bodarkey. On today's show, a look at lots of things that you can do on the cheap or free in NYC. That's this morning at 7.30. But first... When we think about cultural activities that take place in bars, we don't tend to think about classical music. That, however, might be a mistake. In fact, classical musicians all over the place, including in New York City, have been taking up their instruments in just that setting, and they're loving it. From San Francisco, producer Nathaniel Johnson has this story about the group that got the whole thing started. This is the sound of San Francisco's Mission District on any given night. But if I just step inside Socha Cafe here, the soundscape changes. Five musicians in their 20s and early 30s are seated in a semicircle playing stringed instruments. Around them, people are drinking beer and chatting. It's probably a lot noisier than the last live classical performance you went to. But then again... Here, you can get a lot closer. And the performers seem to be having more fun. As the viola makes a little motif, he dips his shoulder as if to toss it to the cello. Here. And she... raises her eyebrows and tosses it back with a little nod of her head. Many of these people are professional musicians, like violinist Jory Fincucci. And the idea is sort of to bring classical music to an audience that doesn't usually get to hear it. You know, I've always wanted to sort of, you know, like play for people and sort of like a, you know, more intimate and play for people that are sort of my own age, that weren't like at least three times my own age. He doesn't have anything against the older music lovers. It's just that Fankuchin started to get depressed when he saw audiences get older and older year after year. But when he started playing in bars, he found a totally different crowd. It's been refreshing because people are totally into it. You know, like people go nuts for it. And it makes you realize you're like, oh yeah, it is kind of, the music is cool. It's just the venues aren't always very cool. And you have to pay so much money, most of these people can't go, right? And you have to get dressed up, you have to be quiet, you can't drink beer while you're watching, you can't, you know, all these things. And I mean, 
I get uncomfortable sometimes in a concert hall, and I'm a classical musician, right? Cherith Premawardhana started the group in September of 2006. They played every Sunday in San Francisco's Revolution Cafe. Premawardhana says people were into it. More audience started coming out, more musicians started coming out to play. Really good musicians started coming out to play. There's this girl, Anakiko Myers, who's a concert violinist. She plays all around the world for sold-out concert halls and stuff. That was our first kind of high-profile person who came in. Since then, we've had people from, you know, San Francisco Opera, San Francisco Symphony, San Francisco Ballet, Atlanta Symphony, Berlin Philharmonic. So these are people that are, they're like on, on they're playing here yeah. and they'll, have, they'll hear about this and stop by? Or? or, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, the guy from Atlanta Symphony was doing a show here with some of these guys, you know. And so uh, he was around, and it's just a kind of a word-of-mouth, like, networking thing. And I assume you're making just tons of money hand over fist from this money. type of thing. Yeah, <laughs> no money. No, but, you know, it's just for fun. You know, we, we make our money doing our gigs, which are usually and boring. And then we, we have things we can do, and it's just fun, and we can, we can drink, and we can, uh, you know do whatever we want just have fun playing music and and the people who listen to us are not people who are playing tons of money you know who we need to try to impress but like people who are our peers you know and who are as drunk as we are or more you know That story from Nathaniel Johnson and more about Classical Revolution at classicalrevolution.org. Now, just because you don't drink, or don't feel like drinking right now, that doesn't mean that you're not in the mood to hang out with a bunch of people in a public place. For a lot of people, as the movies Barbershop, Barbershop 2, and Beauty Shop will attest, that public space is the salon. But while you're chatting with your barber or hairstylist, what are they thinking? We'll close the show today with a look at how some New York City hairstylists see things from behind the chair. This comes from producer Laura Sparrow. My father barber, my grandfather barber, I'm barber, my uh, everybody family barber. You understand? It's challenging. Yeah, and it, it is funny. You, you see lots of sides of people, I guess, when they come in. There's this girl who walks in the shop, right? And, you know, she's very hunchback and with big glasses. And she's looking not not good at all. She walks in. She insists she wants to go darker. She pushes and pushes and pushes. I try to talk her out of it to to nail it. Her exact hairstyle, what she wanted was um, Michael Jackson. Remember, um, we are not alone, you are not alone, that hairstyle he had. She was an extremist. She was into extreme sports, and she liked to wear extreme hair. And uh, we said, uh, do you have some cash? We'll work on you. She wanted someone to shave one side of her head and have the other, like, this bright red wing coming out from the other side. When I went in with the clippers... It was just like three inches of baldness. It was all this hair at the top. And the hairdresser was like, I really, like, I can't do this. And she's like, why? I just got into a big skydiving accident, and I need to express my extreme personality. She was like, I want that kind of hair, you know, like a surfer dude kind of hair. <laughs> 
I think everyone does haircuts that they regret in the beginning. So as I'm cutting this guy's hair, I just start dozing off, and all I can tell you is I heard that dink. So when I woke up, half his side of the back of his head was gone. <laughs> well, someone said uh, just to trim on the sides, and that was the first time I picked the clipper, and I went straight up. Chunky pieces of hair, like missing on the spot. Put a hole in the head, and we had to color it in with mascara. Pieces of hair, pieces of hair, and he said he loved it. Just blended in, and she's never the wiser. Unless she's, like, a fanatic about her hair, and she did some kind of inspecting. Okay, if he's not going to learn from you, from who he have to learn? <laughs> she comes out from the shampoo area, and she looks in the mirror. She freaks out. Out. They don't like their hair color stuff. I didn't ask for this. I give you a good haircut. They said you give me no good haircut. They are hysterical. Like, I don't like it. So they start screaming, yelling. And you're looking at them like, yo, this is what you asked for. How do you expect to get that? You have three ounces of hair. That's a four-pound hairdo. It is funny that people have a perception of themselves in a very different way than you see them. We're very patient people. And I, I was as patient as I could be. And one day she was no, I'm like... I'm not paying you. I'm not paying. No, I'm not paying. But you're going to pay. You know, they, they want a plastic surgeon, not a hairdresser sometimes. Well, I tell people, marry the ugliest girl possible. You marry her and we'll fix her. You made me beautiful. You did it. <laughs> My job always good. <laughs> good job I do. From WFUV 90.7 and WFUV.org, this has been Fordham Conversations. If you have any comments or questions about today's show, you can, as always, email us at FordhamConversations at WFUV.org. Fordham Conversations is available as a podcast at WFUV.org. It's also in our audio archive, which you can also find on our website. I'm Nora Flaherty. Cityscape is next. Thank you for listening and have a fabulous weekend.